This morning, I want to continue on with our church letters from Jesus. And we're going to be talking about the third church, Pergamum or Pergamus. And I want to just, can I preface this? Because I want to um, make sure that when we look at these letters, I don't want these messages to become heavy. These are heavy words that Jesus is speaking to the churches. But I want to make sure that we don't let the devil or our own uh, ideas bring this into a heaviness. I, I want to see these for what they are. These are messages from Jesus. Oh, Jesus. These are messages from Jesus to the churches. And if Jesus has a message for us, don't you think we should listen to it? I don't think Jesus wants to be heavy. I don't think he wants to be overhanded. And I will do my best not to make it that way. I will do my best to smile. I'm not a real smiley person, but I will do my best. I don't want you to think I'm heavy. I don't want you to think I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm not. I'm very excited about what's going on. I'm very excited about where we're going. I've seen so many good things in our church. But it doesn't mean we can't still speak the letters of Jesus and understand what Jesus is saying to the churches, okay? Because there are some things here that we can glean that are going to be very good for us. And, you know, I would rather, I want to know what Jesus wants for me. I don't want to have anything besides what God wants for me, and I want it to be the way he wants to tell it to me. Amen? So let's look at this in, in the positive light in which it is, because it's a positive message. So let's look at Re Revelations chapter 2. You can open up your Bible. We're going to be there most of the time. We're Revelations chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the message that you gave to John. And Lord, now I pray that you bring it to light to us today. How did it apply to that church and how does it apply to us? Help us to glean from this the truth that you have for us that we would then be better people and that we would be more pleasing in your sight, and that we would also have that new name written down in heaven for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I, I meant to do this during offering, and I forgot. There are some handouts uh, that are back on that back table right there. If I could get a couple of young people, or ushers, or somebody that would... Um, Drew, you're a young man. Would you help me? Would you grab those papers and just, and Drew and Rick, and just hand them out? And th rather than going over overheads today, I just wanted to do this. And um, that way you can kind of see where we're going, and you've got some room to take notes if you so desire. 
So Jesus addressed to the church, again, consistently with the previous letters and the letters coming, Jesus always writes the letter to the angel of the church in the name of the city that it's in. Okay, to the letter, to the angel of the church in Pergamos, meaning the leadership, the spiritual leadership, the physical leadership, and all of the people in the church. Why would God, why would Jesus write a letter to leaders if leaders weren't supposed to pass it down to those that were followers, right? So this is to the whole church of Pergamum or Pergamos, and also it's to the church of today. Let's look at some of the characteristics of Pergamos and see why this is such an important church of the day. Pergamos was the political capital city of the Roman province of Asia. When John wrote, Pergamos was the um, capital city for more, he's been the capital city for more than 300 years. So it's a well-established political city. The city was noted for their cultural and educational attributes. In fact, one of the great libraries of the ancient world was in Pergamos, and it had over 200,000 volumes. Now, think of that. That's not like our libraries today where we can just get things off printing presses. 200,000 volumes of handwritten documents, scrolls, whatever they were written in at the time, were in this, one of, some of these libraries, or one in, was held in this particular city. Pergamos, and we'll notice, as in most of the other cities that we're talking about, are re extremely religious cities. Religious cities. But we, as we found last week, religion doesn't always correlate with godly. Religious cities. It had temples to the Greek and Roman gods, Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, Demeter and Zeus. And it also had three temples dedicated to the worship, uh, worship of the Roman emperors. Remember last week we talked about to the church of Smyrna how they were into emperor worship? Well, Pergamos was even more into emperor worship because 50 years before Smyrna ever dedicated their temple to, the, um, to their emperor, um, Pergamum had built a temple to Tiberius, which was a Caesar prior to that. So they were clearly already into the area of worship of uh, political deities, political people, uh, Caesar. And which obviously brings persecution when you don't do that, when you don't worship the way they worship. Pergamos was especially known for the worship of the deity named Escapalius, Esclepios. I can't say it, A-S-C-L-E-P-I-O-S, Esclepios. And this was a god that um, was rep represented by a serpent, a snake. And if this snake were to, it, it was a, it was claimed um, that it had healing powers and it had uh, the powers to um, bring physical and emotional healing and so quite often that they would put sufferers uh, in a temple to spend a night with the snakes and if a snake were to touch you or to uh, crawl over you during the night um, it was and it was then that you were going to be healed that the snake had the power to heal and bring health so you can see that Pergamos um, had some religion and had some practices that were not godly. <laughs> there was nothing godly about healing coming through a serpent um, in this particular way. So they were a city that was well established. It was a politically strong city. It was a wealthy city. And it was a religious city. But it wasn't 
known for religion as far as godly religion because we already know that um, this was where Satan lived. And we'll talk about that in a little minute. Description of Christ. Uh, Jesus describes himself the same way that he described himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, that he has um, a sharp, sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, that's kind of a, maybe a, um, a hard thing for us to envision. Um, but it's important that we understand that there must have been something significant about words. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, it says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And in 1.16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. So obviously, if something is associated with a mouth, it must be associated with words. The things that Jesus spoke were penetrating. They are powerful. And they were, they were real. I mean, they brought things to bear. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it talks a little bit more about a double-edged sword. For the word of God is alive and active. Again, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Something powerful about a double-edged sword a double-edged sword cuts going in and it cuts coming out. It cuts going down, it cuts going up. It cuts sideways in both directions. There's something um, more powerful about a double-edged sword than just a regular sword, and Jesus refers to his words as a double-edged sword. And let's take this one step further. Since mankind is created in the image of God, does it make sense that our words are also powerful? That our words also carry power, maybe not as powerful as Christ's words, obviously, but yet we speak many things into existence and many things out of existence by the power of our words because that we're made in God's image. Now, I'm sure that we've all heard the saying when we were younger, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me or names will never hurt me. Have you ever heard that? That's not true by the way. I think that was some mom's shortcut to keep the boys from fighting. <laughs> when Billy calls you a bad name, just ignore it because it doesn't hurt you. But in all reality, that name really does hurt, doesn't it? Words are very powerful. Words are very cutting. Once a word is spoken, you can't pull it back. Once it leaves the mouth, it's gone. Now we can say I'm sorry and we can do all the things that we think we can do to try to make amends for the word but the word has already done its work for the good or for the bad in many situations words cut as they enter the mind and they also cut again when they leave the mouth in the form of gossip in the form of of slander in the form of lying see I can have a cutting word going into my mind, and yeah, it's damaging and it hurts, but the double-edged side of the sword comes when I repeat it in a negative tone. See, I can, if somebody says something to hurt me, yeah, it hurts. No question about it, it hurts. But I can stop it if I want to. I can stop it. It doesn't have to go any further. I don't have to grumble against something about the church. I don't have to grumble about something that I don't like. 
It doesn't have to be the double-edged sword because when it goes back out, it's cutting again. Not only is it cutting through you, but it's cutting into somebody else. And then when they do the same thing, it's cutting into somebody else. That double-edged sword, it cuts going in and it cuts coming out. So it's best for us to recognize the power of the words and that we learn to contain the words and make them positive words so that we don't do the damage that a double-edged sword can do. Now there's another aspect of a, of a double-edged sword that we see that Jesus is talking about, and this is a good thing. Because when God uses his double-edged sword on me, he's, he's very careful with it. See, God doesn't come with a sledgehammer to just to beat me down, to destroy me, to throw me away, to start off with somebody else. No, when I have problems in my life, the double-edged sword, the sharp double-edged sword is to my benefit because God uses that sword like a surgeon. He brings it in and he divides between the spirit of truth and untruth. He divides between the spirit of, of the, the false and the true and he comes in and he says, I want to take this little bit out of your life and I want to leave that bit alone. And because it's sharp, he can do it very carefully. He can come in like a surgeon dissecting a cancer or a tumor and he can take just that out but leave the rest alone so that he doesn't have to come in and disturb everything. So it, it minimizes the healing process. It minimizes the painful process. But yet the cutting process have to, has to happen. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit today about how the gardener comes and he prunes the, he prunes the tree. He has to prune the dead weight. He prunes the branch that isn't producing fruit. He cuts it off and he burns it so that the fruit of the tree, so that the tree can be more productive. It's a similar analogy here of how God uses uh, his double-edged sword to divide between truth and untruth. The Amplified ber Version of the Bible gives us a little bit more explanation. Let's read that of the same verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is in the Amplified Version. It says, again, For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, which is the soul, and the immortal spirit, and of joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. See, God sees it all. God sees the, in, the very intimate parts of you and me. There is nothing hidden from him. He sees every desire in your heart and he judges it by your motivations and your desires. God uses his word and the power of our words. In other words, out of the heart speaketh the mouth. Out of the heart, what's really in me is what comes out. Eventually, you hang around me long enough and you'll know if I'm a Christian or not by what I say. I will know if you're a Christian or not by what you speak. It's just a matter of time. I can put a good face on for a while, but eventually you're going to see the real Mike way. You're going to know who, really who I am if you hang around me long enough because I'm going to speak it. Eventually it's going to come out of my mouth. And you'll know. You'll know my fruit. If you're an apple tree, there will be apples on the ground. You'll know the fruit of a man. So by the power of God's word and the power of our words, 
He knows us intimately so that we will be without excuse when we stand before him on come judgment day. You see, God knows us to the point that he understands what motivates us. He, understand is what, he understands what our long-term vision is. He understands our short-term vision. And he wants to give us the desires of our heart that would allow us to follow him as close as possible. He wants to give us his word. He wants to use that sharp two-edged sword to give us a good discernment so that we know how to live. God makes it very clear that his knowledge of us is never limited to our exterior levels only. He knows us better than we know ourselves. What's the condition of this church? Moving on to the next Next element of the, of the way that Jesus gives these letters. Revelations chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So clearly this church was in a dark world. If Satan is living there, it's not a good place to be, is it? Spiritually, at least. Satan lived in their community. Satan was around them. They were living in it, but not part of it. Jesus commended them for that. Even though you lived in a bad place, even though you had uh, the, the evil all around you, I commend you because you did not re renounce your faith in me. You stood strong in me, even to the point for Antipas' purpose, he gave his life. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He was martyred for Jesus. They were faithful to his name. Outwardly, they didn't renounce their faith in Christ, even in the face of persecution. That was a good thing. Jesus always tells us what's good about us. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus will always tell you what he thinks about you for the good? Because there is good in you. There, he will find the good in you. Nobody comes. Jesus does not come just to find the bad. He comes to find the good, and he wants to tell you where you're good. But let's go on, because we need to look at the whole picture, don't we? There is a rebuke to this church. There is a rebuke. What did Jesus say to this church? Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you... There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, that's important that we take the time to dig into what Jesus sees in this church. And then we also see how it could apply to me. Do I have any of the teaching of Balaam in me? Do I have any of the practice of the Nicolaitans in my life? Do we have any in our church? If we do, let's see it. Let's dig it out. Let's allow the sharp two-edged sword of God's word to come and divide it and remove it, right? Let's just let's be obedient to this. Let's not close our eyes and just want to hear just the good. Let's hear it all because it's for our good. Amen? So let's look at this a little bit more. Verse 14, there are some among you hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites. Another, another translation uses the word stumbling block. Let me read that one. It says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So first of all, we need to know who Balaam is. 
we need to go back and understand a little bit about the story of Balaam and Balak. The story is given to us in Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24, then also chapter 31. Now, I'm not going to read those, thank goodness. But the story goes this way. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was offered a reward and a, commo and a promotion by an evil king named Balak. All right, now, let's stop right there. There should be a clue in the first sentence here that there's a problem coming. Because Balaam, a prophet of God, was offered a reward and a promotion by king. Well, what do you think Balak or what do you think Balaam's motivation is right from the beginning? <laughs> if the king is coming to offer a reward or a promotion, then you've got to be there's, there's got to be some warning bells going off in your head right now as to what does he want me to tell him? All right, let's continue on. This reward would be earned if he could cause a curse to come upon the Israelites who were God's people. And the Bible informs us that Balaam could not curse the Israelites himself because they were favored of God. So here we have Balak, who is the king of the Moabites, the Israel people, the Israelites, were moving in the land, conquering as they go. Balak saw what was going on, and he wanted that to stop. He didn't want his kingdom to be destroyed by the Israelites, by the Jews. So Balaam had a track record of being able to be a good prophet. In other words, what Balaam said happened. So he went to another city, and he sent his emissaries to get Balaam to bring him back so that Balaam could curse the Israelites so they wouldn't destroy Balak or his kingdom. Following the drift, if you see what's going on? So, consequently, um, when Balaam tried to do it, it's quite a story, you should go back and read it, but he tried three different times, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites, and each time, Balaam could not curse them. Now, we'll find that Balaam was not necessarily the best prophet of God. He was motivated by some evil he did have some evil in his heart. He was mo motivated more by the reward and by what he could get physically from Balak. But yet he had power. Um, there's a study right there. We don't want to go into that right now. But th th here's the purpose. Here's the point of this message. When Balaam couldn't outrightly curse because God wouldn't allow him to outrightly curse the Israelites, what he did do was figure out a way that the Israelites could curse themselves by enticing them or becoming a stumbling block to them so that the Israelite armies would indulge with things that didn't please the Lord. They would have um, idolatrous worship practices that would come into the Israelites through idols and through food sacrifice to idols and through sexual immorality. So that when the Israelite armies partook in that, they took themselves out of the favor of God. And now Balak got what he wanted because the Israelites took themselves out, but Balaam didn't directly. So the warning for us is false teaching. The warning to us comes, how can we do or how do we do a similar thing with people with our freedoms that we indulge in? How do we become a stumbling block to others because we indulge in our freedoms at the expense of their salvation. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 15 through 16, it says this. 
This is Peter speaking now to the New Testament church. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, just like Balaam, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And then skip down to verse 15. They have left the straight way. Who have these teachers, these false teachers, have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. So in our day today, in our churches today, we will find that there will come false teaching that will come in more for the greed of our temporary satisfactions, more for the um, lust, fulfilling the lust of the, of, the, of the fleshly man, more so than trying to really discern the will of God. And Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum, and he's warning our church today, watch out for that. Watch out for those false teachers that would bring in the easy believism, that would bring in the, the false teaching that would be the stumbling block. See, the danger of the enemy is that he is so subtle in that he brings many things to us in partial truths. Enough truth to bring us in, but not all the truth that would give us the freedom that truth brings. Right? In other words, he would bring us into a level of maybe not sin, but you know what? That is a gateway to sin. It's a gateway to if you follow that long enough, that path will lead you away from the Lord and into a sinful relationship or a sinful experience or a sinful action. And that's the danger of Balaam. That's the danger of false teaching. It sounds really good at the beginning. It sounds really good at the outset. Man, it sounds good. He's a smooth talker. It's a great message. It's a great program. It's great. Everything looks good about it. But in the end, it just doesn't really follow godly words. It doesn't really allow the double-edged sword of God's word to penetrate into the, into the between, the, really dividing the truth and the untruth. And it's so tempting to go that way because it's such an easy way to have church. It's such an easy way to live life when I'm hearing what I want to hear. But Jesus is saying, be careful with that. Not, not just be careful with it. He says, avoid that. Romans chapter 14 tells us more about stumbling blocks. Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking to the Roman church, beginning at verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, what Paul's going to go on to describe here, he's going to describe about food that is being sacrificed to idols. And we've got to remember this, we're coming out of an, uh, a, the Old Testament time. And there's a lot of change taking place in the New Testament church. Change always creates confusion. Change always creates a level of, of angst. And so the New Testament true believers recognized that the food that was being eaten, that was being sacrificed to the idols, the idols were dead. Idols had meant nothing. So really, if there was a nice steak 
that was, that was going to be sacrificed or given to that idol, there's nothing wrong with eating that steak because it's just going to a, being worshipped or being given to a piece of wood or a piece of stone. But for those that were the newer Christians that saw idol worship as still being uh, very damaging and very, they didn't know how to handle it because they were so new in their faith, to them, if the Christian would have eaten that, money, that, that meat given to the idol, it would have been a travesty. It would have been a sin to them to do that. So Paul's saying here, he says, guys, listen, I'm convinced here that what's happening, this food is really not bad. It's not going to send you to hell. But if it puts a stumbling block before a younger Christian, then mature Christian, don't eat the meat. You don't need it. There's other meat. Go, go to something else. So don't purposely put a stumbling block in somebody because you might have the freedom to do that. If it's going to impact somebody else in a negative, think about somebody else more than think about yourself. So then he goes on to verse 14. I'm convinced and being full, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and, and receives human approval. Verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So it's a clear command given from Paul. And then in Matthew chapter 18, if, if that's really not enough to know how, how dangerous it is to be a stumbling block, and that's exactly what Balaam was. Balaam was the stumbling block to the Israelites. That's exactly what I can be. Matthew chapter 18 tells us again, this is Jesus speaking, beginning at verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones... Those who believe in me, a little one may be a child or it may be just a young Christian, to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying here, he's not into maiming ourselves physically. <laughs> but if there's something in this world that is attracting me away from the truth of God, it's better for me to do without that than to have that and to miss heaven. What, what does it gain a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Right? So if there is a temptation, if there is an indulgence, not just now, I'm not talking now to my brother, I'm talking now to me, because Jesus says, cut your own arm off, gouge your own eye out, if it causes you to stumble. I can cause myself to stumble. I can cause, in fact, I'm probably my biggest problem in that area. 
because I allow myself to get distracted by the things of this world. And rather than me keeping my eyes focused on Jesus, I'm, I'm distracted by that thing in the world that I want, that pleasure that I want, or that whatever it is, you name it, whatever is in your life, whatever's in my life, whatever is causing me to walk away from the truth of Jesus, if that is causing me to stumble, gouge it out. Let the, let the double-edged sword of Jesus come in and divide between truth and untruth in your life and see it for what it is and gouge it out so that you will not be tempted by that and not be tempted to lose your eternal soul. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Then verse 15 he says, Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'm not going to get into that. We talked about that last week a little bit. But the Nicolaitans were also a false teaching sect. Nicholas was a, um, was a devout follower. In fact, he was appointed as an, by, by the apostles. He was a good guy. He followed Jesus. But something happened in Nicholas that he didn't like about the way that God's word was encouraging them or teaching them so he made his own way around it he became a stumbling block to himself and then he created a teaching and then, then it become they became the nicolaitans after nicholas again uh, i don't it's not important that we know their viewpoint at that time but the point here is that we have to guard ourselves. we must be sure that we're basing our beliefs on what god's word says not on a man's opinion including your own, <laughs> including my own, okay? In other words, I really have to invite God to get into my heart here. I really have to invite him to say, Lord, give me your truth, not my opinion, not my, the thing that I can soften that word a little bit there because I don't really want to do that, so I'm going to soften that, God, and I'm going to make that word the, the, the word of God. That's bad. <laughs> Don't do that. Let the Holy Spirit bring in that discernment that would say, yeah, when you read Scripture, read it for what it says. Don't read the Bible in quips and in highlights that would justify what you believe. We're all guilty of that. Come on. I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. It's easy to take a Scripture out of context. But when you read the Scripture, read the whole context of it. Don't just take one scripture and say, oh, well, that says this. Well, no, read the scriptures above it and read the scriptures below it and understand what that original message was to the, of the original writer to the original church. It's so dangerous when we start to play games with that. When we start to take our, the scripture and start to make it relative to me, I start to make it relative to my situation and I want to just take the edge off it a little bit so that I can use it to my advantage. Amen? Have you ever done that? Yeah, I think we all have. If you've read Scripture at all, you have. I'm telling you right now, because there are some things in God's Word that is just hard to listen to. It is just hard to appreciate. It's hard to understand. This is where we just go before the Lord and say, God, would you help me with this one? Would you help me here? Would you, would you give me the right word? Would you give me the right discernment? Study its context. Gain the bigger picture of what God is saying of us and to us. Go talk to a brother, a Christian brother that you trust. Ask him, what did you think that word says? What does it mean? Go to a, go to a, a Bible scholar. Go to a commentary. There's so much information out there that you can see the whole bigger picture. But then also, don't depend on what is being said. In other words, take everything that's being said today and go home and think about it. 
Go home and study it. Go home and put it against God's word and let God's word be the truth bearer. The command of Jesus is this. Verse 16, real simple, two words. Repent, therefore. Repent, repent. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here. <laughs> he just says, repent. What does repent mean? Change and go the other way. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry if I've done some of these things. I'm sorry if I have caused someone to stumble. I'm sorry if I've caused myself to stumble. I'm sorry if I'm teaching a, a, a lesson, a, a path that's not really true. I'm sorry. Now, God, teach me and to go the other direction and repent and go around backwards. Go the other direction. Don't just stay there. There, there comes a time where the change is right. We sang a new song today. New things come into our life that are purposeful. Don't just think about doing it. Just don't feel sorry about doing it. Just don't say that I'll deal with it someday. Don't wish it away. Repent. Do it. If you're, if you're compromising, stop compromising. If you're knowingly sinning, stop sinning. The point is, you know it. So the instruction is, by Jesus' words, stop. Repent. If you're hitting your thumb with a hammer and it hurts, stop swinging the hammer. The consequence of disobedience, there's always consequences for actions, good or bad. Verse 16, the consequence here, Jesus says, Otherwise, if you don't repent, I will, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we talked about the sword of God's mouth quite a bit, how powerful it is. I don't want that against me. I don't want God fighting against me. According to God's holiness, we can't be surprised when he brings a judgment. We know God's a holy God, right? We know it. Therefore, we can't be surprised when God says, I will bring a judgment to those that disobey. So let's not be surprised by that. Let's not be upset by that. Let's not be offended by that. Let's just know that's what God's consequences are. So let's just do the things that God wants us to do, and then we'll be able to experience the promise. What's the promise of overcomers? Revelations chapter 2, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, here we go again. As usual, Jesus gives a promise to those that persevere, to those that overcome, and his promise always is eternal life. God's promise is always for your benefit. His promise is always to take you out of this path, down the narrow path, into the path of eternal life. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. To the one who overcomes the spirit of compromise and accommodation, I will give a hidden manna. What's hidden manna? First of all, we know what manna is. Manna was what God gave the Israelites for 40 years while they traveled in the desert. Every day, God would provide them with physical food. Hidden manna is, I'm going to assume, spiritual food. It's hidden to our physical eyes. Yes, God does provide our physical needs, but more importantly, he provides my spiritual needs. So that hidden manna would be a spiritual feeding of me. If I overcome and if I allow my life to live according to God's word, I can trust God to give me provision, to give me the spiritual provision. John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's the promise of God's word. And then he also says that I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
See, at the times of this writing, a white stone had many applications. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet. A white stone could be a sign of friendship or evidence of having been counted or as a sign of acquittal in a court of law. Jesus may have had many of these associations in his mind when he said a white stone, but basically what he's saying is, I'm going to, I'm going to write your name in heaven on a white stone, and it's going to be a new name. Jackie, if you would come and be, help us prepare to close here. Um, the Bible talks a lot about names. And the Bible talks about how the redeemed will have their name written in a book of heaven called the book of life. And we're not, I don't know if that name is going to be my earthly name. I don't know that God's writing my name right now as Mike Way. Or maybe he's written as a name that he's given me with my redemption. It was common that when something happened critical in the life of people, God would change the name of people. He changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, um, Saul to Paul. Can I even say Charlotte Assembly of God to Center Point Assembly? Something new happened here. Something new is happening here. And so God, when God brings a change of significance, often a name is changed. We're told that we have a name written in heaven. And it's a new name. But he also makes it perfectly clear that for those that think there are multiple ways to get to heaven, that there's not multiple ways to get to heaven. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. As always... There's a choice. And that choice is our choice. It's your choice to have your name written there. Which book do you want your name written in? Revelation chapter 20, go back a couple scriptures before that in the same chapter, verse 11 through 12. It describes this judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Verse 11 says that the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Basically what that means is come that day, it's going to be just me and God. All earth and all of heaven is going to flee and I have no place to hide. I have no place to run. I have nobody to blame. I have nobody to make my excuses on. It's just going to be me and God, and everything else is going to be away. So now God says, okay, Mike, let's talk a little bit. Where's your name? Where's your name? Is your name in a book of life? You see, um, we have to understand that at the end of the day what I want to happen at the end of the day is only based on the summation of what I do every day I went golfing on Friday with some buddies from Ford and uh, they called me up on Friday and these are the guys that I would golf with every year for 15 years and we'd come up and they'd play they're playing 18 Friday, 36 Saturday 36 today and 18 tomorrow, a lot of golf I played with them on Friday afternoon because I had some time now, what is significant about this was that when I played with them many years ago, I was a good golfer. I was probably the best in the group. 
And um, when I played on Friday, I was not the best in the group. <laughs> I hadn't played a lot of golf, and so my golf game got really bad. I wanted my score to be what it always was with these guys. I wanted it to be 80. I didn't want it to be 100. But what I found was that the only way that I was going to have a score of 80 is if I made every shot a good shot. And when I saw my score going downhill, I started thinking about my life a little bit. I'm thinking, you know, if I want Jesus to say, Mike, well done, thou good and faithful, then I've got to look at my everyday activity as a good activity. I can't wish my life to be good. I can't wish my score to be 80 when I'm hitting a bunch of bad shots. It makes sense? So if I want the end result to be what I wish it to be, I have to take responsibility today to do it. I have to be able to make sure that I'm living by God's word today. I can't live the way I want to live and then just count my scorecard wrong. God's a good scorekeeper too. And you know, it's so easy to cheat in a game of golf, but you know, your partners, they know what you're doing. It's, it's no fun to get caught cheating in the game of golf. In the game of life, folks, it'll be no fun to get caught at the end of the day if I haven't been playing the game according to the rules of Christianity. Amen? And then the good news is, Revelation chapter 5, or 3, verse 5, the one who is victorious, like them, will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So this morning, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, and if you're living your life, and if you are living your life that way, not to be accepted by Jesus, but as a result of being accepted by Jesus. There's such a difference in those two words. But you must live your life according to God's word if you want to have that, if you want that name, that new name. So this morning, I just want this message to be an uplifting message so that I'm encouraged to continue to do my life on a daily basis the way that God wants me to. So at the end of the day, my scorecard reads the good score. Would you close your eyes? Would you pray with me? Father, I just come now to you in Jesus' name. And I ask, Lord, that you just do some dissecting right now. Holy Spirit, would you sharpen that already sharpened two-edged blade? And, and would you allow it to penetrate into my heart? That would it really go down into my heart so that I would separate truth from untruth? God, that I would really understand your passion your purpose, your direction, your, your desire for my heart, that I would put away my things that I think I could do a better job. That's really what it's like when I think I could do something better than you. How silly of me for that. I know the word is truth. Help me to live by it. So Lord, right now, as your eyes are closed and you're just thinking about that, where is your heart today with Jesus? Where is your heart? Is your heart there it can be. It can be this morning. It doesn't take an awful lot. It just takes your decision. Then it takes your discipleship. Amen. If you, if you really want that, if, you, if you're struggling in that area right now, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to express your faith to the Lord by just um, telling him, by raising your hand to him right now, saying, Jesus, I need some help in a particular area. I need some help. All eyes are closed. This is just a personal thing between you and the Lord. 
But all you're doing is you're acknowledging Jesus to say, God, there's some things in my life that I need to repent of. I need to, I need to make some changes in some areas of my life. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person. It just means you're an honest person. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I see the hands. That's good. I see that. It's all right. Yeah, amen. We all have that. Amen. Thank you. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the way you've given us a new name. And Lord Jesus, we want to celebrate that now as we go to our homes. We just want to allow this to, to uh, uh, just settle in our hearts today that we would go and we would always be serving you and, and, and pushing harder towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing the song. thank you for this day. Lord, and I pray that we'd go rejoicing, God, with our new name written in heaven. Lord, that we would never be blotted away and would serve you with mercy and joy and happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed today as you go to your homes.